I love Scott Boris, but I, I, I can't have his words in my mouth. Why should someone have to change the dream they're pursuing because they're not able to live in an actual functioning lifestyle with the money that they're given? First point he made was that they were using something that lacked a methodology and was not concrete. And then he listed heart, experience, work ethic, leadership, <laughs> love, and passion. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Artificial Turf Wars, episode 87, where we ask, why buy tickets for Waiting for Godot when you can listen to us instead? I'm your host, Greg Wisniewski. I'm <laughs> joined this week by Joshua. How's some Josh? How you feeling? Much better. Glad to be back. Yeah, this is your, uh, your, your, what do you call it? Your major opening, your, uh, your return to form, as it were, from, from your illness. So glad to have you back. You sound good. Uh, I wish I had a lot to discuss with you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's been the most exciting offseason ever. Yeah, uh, we do have a couple of things on the agenda here because we're good at making agendas. Um, we... <laughs> if, if nothing else, we're good at thinking of things to talk about. <laughs> We have very angry owners and players. Those are that's always fun. I always like to watch people argue out on on the onlines. Um, then we have, I guess, still Joe Biagini, fifth starter. We should talk about whether that's actually a thing that's likely going to happen or not, and what it means. Then uh, there's the rest of the lineup, which. It seems like, other than maybe one more piece somewhere, maybe this is it. Uh, we have an interview with Emily Walden, and uh, we'll get in-depth with her about the minor leagues, and uh, we'll see what else comes up. And uh, then we're going to have, of course, a do-over, because what would our, uh, our little podcast be without a do-over? So we begin with the angriest... Like, they say that there's stages, right? There's, there's, there's fear, and then fear leads to anger. Isn't that uh, isn't that a Star Wars thing? Yeah, anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. So, <laughs> so some Yoda quotes on the podcast. Uh, okay, so the players were fearful that they weren't going to make any money, and now it seems like they're just angry. I think they might be angry and hateful right now. <laughs> well, the suffering will be us when the strike comes around. And is it twenty twenty one? Yeah, that's when it ends. So they'll strike and then cancel the World Series again, and everything will be terrible. Yeah. But in the meantime, they're everybody's just in a foul mood, and it's and it's literally everybody. There are some people. I think it was uh, I can't even remember. Who it was Brandon Moss, who was basically saying it's like, yeah, we kind of did this to ourselves with the CBA, <laughs> but he's the quiet voice. <laughs> it's not even so. That's not even a positive spin. That's that's just a not angry spin but yeah nobody likes what's going on because nobody's been signed nobody's getting paid um so i think though what we should address address is people in the general public not exactly understanding how this works in terms of the general public's dollars and what happens when payers get players get paid less it doesn't help you <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> Makes no difference to you, actually, whatsoever. Because the ticket price is not based on the payroll. Ticket no, price. Based... Yeah, go ahead. On demand. And demand is based on 
how much an owner thinks he can get people to pay to sit and watch a baseball game. Yeah, like the Marlins traded everybody. They are not slashing ticket prices. That's not a thing. No, because they think they can, at, you know, 50 bucks a pop or 60 bucks a pop, they can get people to sit in those seats. That's it. Right, and that's all it is. So there's no relation between any of these things. It's just, <laughs> you know, it, they're, they're the players make their money because they are the best in the world, and then that has no effect on your wallet. Right. So the pie is going to be there no matter what. That is, people are going to pay uh, either TV rights or ticket prices or concessions or whatever else. They're going to pay that to a baseball team. And the baseball team is going to take its money and it's going to dole out its pie, some of which back to, you know, stadium ops staff and some of which to uh, upgrades. And, and then the owner is going to keep as much of that as possible. <laughs> whether it's a corporate owned team or whether it's Mike Illich, you know, well, not anymore, but yeah, it was. May he rest in peace. Yes, exactly. It's universal truth. The owners want to make money. And guess what? Despite all of that you may have heard about how much, say, Robinson Cano or Albert Pujols signed for two or three or four years ago, the owners are still making more and keeping more out of every dollar spent on baseball than they ever have been. Or at least close to it. I mean, what uh, you know, obviously these Forbes numbers are grain of salt. We don't really know exactly everything, but essentially it's saying the player's share of revenues is down to somewhere around 38, 39% now. Which is, uh, you know, if you think about the NBA, uh, I believe they were looking because part of the salary cap structure is, is, a, is agreeing about how much of those revenues come back to the players, right? That's one of the ways you get a salary cap negotiated. I believe they were somewhere between a 50-50 and a 45-55 split. Yeah, they eventually ended up at 50-50. There was originally discussions about which side of 50-50 it should end up on, but they did end up right down the middle. So th that's 12% of the money in the owner's pocket relative to what an NBA team would be holding on to. It's huge. Yeah, that's, that's millions and millions of dollars when you're talking I mean, about And we're talking about a, a $10 billion industry. So when you think about that, 12% of $10 billion is a lot of money. So uh, you really should not hate on the players unless you really love owners. And maybe, maybe some people are cheering for the owners and I don't know it. And, and so now I think this is a good time to bring up some of the the back and forth that is that occurred here because for the most part the owners were sort of and i say when i say the owners the owners and i mean and baseball the commissioner's office and all that together they were sort of winning this war because they weren't really saying anything they were just letting agents go out there and run their mouths and sound ridiculous at times some of them don't like josh kuznick on our podcast was very you know, very honest and careful. And it wasn't about, you know, not winning a hundred million dollars is about, I can't even get minor league contracts. Right. Uh, and, but they, they were winning the PR war and there's no argument really against that until very recently. <laughs> so would you like to read the Scott Boris comments or would you like me to? You go ahead. I love Scott Boris, but I, I, I can't have his words in my mouth. <laughs> okay. So basically the MLB office put out a tweet 
or not a tweet. Sorry, I've, I'm so used to saying tweet that this is sort of they put it that's a where press we read release. It. We read it on a tweet. Yeah, didn't we, read, we? <laughs> yeah, we read it on Twitter. So I'm going to say they put out a tweet and stick with it. But uh, essentially talking about how the current situation is, you know, there are a lot of players with nine figure offers and and it's it's about value and such like that. Essentially saying it's like there are there's money out there. They're just not taking it. Right. Which was, you know, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, people read that and were like, okay, yeah, fine. That's probably, there's some truth to that. And then Scott Boras responded and he took issue with the fact that they said the nine figure offers because in the CBA, the teams are not allowed to share the offers that they get with anybody, the team or the league. And he likened it back to the, uh, to the collusion in the 1980s. Now, now that's, that's the C word in baseball. Yeah, no one really really wants to talk about that, but (laughs) Boras definitely alluded to it. But now, of course, the silly thing there is everybody who's paying attention to any of the stories knows that there are rumors that J.D. Martinez has a nine-figure offer and Hugh Darvish has a nine-figure offer. So they didn't have to get that information from a team. Mm -hmm. But then here's where MLB started to lose some of his PR war. The chief legal officer, Dan Halem, responded... If Mr. Bora spent as much time working on getting his players signed as he does issuing inflammatory and unsubstantiated statements to the press, <laughs> perhaps the events of this offseason would be different. So first I would like to say that as much as I may not be a fan, I know I said I loved him, but I really don't. I'm, I'm not a fan of the way Mr. Boris works. But if if I were to put on a list people i would never enter a public relations war slash contest with he would be <laughs> right at the top it might only be him because the man knows how to work a room and he knows how to message he has he has pockets full of dollar bills because he knows how to stick to a message that works right <laughs> i mean I'm going to get to the specific comments there in a second, but especially not only does he know how to work a room, he knows how to make you look like the bad guy, but he's made a career out of making you look like the bad guy. Yeah. It's it's like playing with explosives. It's (laughs) go ahead, juggle grenades. It'll go fine. (laughs) Yeah. And then also if Mr. Boras spent as much time working on getting his players signed as he does issuing, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any agent in the history of sports who works harder at getting his players signed than Scott Boras? I don't think so. I don't think there's anyone. Well, I mean, the fact that we know his name and (laughs) right there, we we don't even have to talk about who Scott Boras is. I bet you nine out of 10 people who are listening to any of this back and forth, they had to look up what uh, the MLB's guy's job was when his statement came out. But nobody, everybody remembers who Scott Boris represents and and who he's got money for. Like, he he's already, oh, it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and I, so this is where they started to lose the war because it was just such a stupid, cheap comment to make from the chief legal officer of MLB. And it's just like, why are you getting involved? Why are you playing in the mud? You don't need to do this. Just let the offseason play out and take in all your money. Well, yeah. I mean, if if Boris is insinuating that something is going on, it's upon him to produce proof that there's something going on. You don't want to wait in there waving your arms around going, oh, no, there's nothing going on. Well, 
now you've just been like, well, why'd you wait in here if you didn't have anything, any vested interest in what was going on? Why are you, why'd you show up? Right. And that's exactly it. And, well, this guy sort of lost that message. <laughs> I mean, who the heck is Dan Hallam? I mean, like, I wonder if Rob Manfred, who is one apparently one of the sh- biggest shark negotiators in the history of, of baseball, you know, you know, at least in modern history, you know, since the players actually had any rights, he probably was not happy about that. No. Um, it does come, uh, of course, I guess, around to the other guy who is in this uh, is Tony Clark who is the head mm-hmm. of the MLBPA uh, and I think is now being asked questions about exactly what it is he does for the players now that he apparently negotiated a contract that doesn't give them uh, any leverage in this situation. Yeah, the, the last CBA was really weird. The players seemed to go for a whole bunch of creature comforts, you know, things like extra off days in the, in the season and basically a lot of things to make it more comfortable during the year. And they lost a lot of things when it came to actual ability to earn money and ways that the uh, MLB put into the system to limit spending. And now they're getting really upset about it. Well, it's like, well, you know, maybe don't have a former player as your lead negotiator. Maybe get an actual negotiator to do it. And and that, I think, right there is a huge thing is, is you know, experts negotiate contracts um and and they need the time and energy and everything devoted to that as a skill and a study there's hundreds of pages in that cba uh and even when they've had people look at it say with the qualifying offers um things have come out in unexpected ways Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you invest money in that because since you're protecting or trying to protect the income of of what are 1200 members of your union yeah it's about that and especially going up against a guy like manfred who's been the lead negotiator for mlb since long before he was the commissioner they knew what he was they knew how good he was at this and you know i'm not it's not taking away from tony clark's intelligence he's probably a very very smart man but it's not his profession Right. So when push comes to shove in 2021, I'm sure there will be a lot of noise before 2021 when it gets renegotiated again. Uh, But I think if you're going to make this argument that teams have suddenly become rational and are no longer going to play, pay middle-aged players, and by middle-aged I mean in the middle of their careers, for their declining years... If that rationality is suddenly exploded on the scene and that's what's going to be going forward. I don't know if that, that still doesn't really hold water for me, but that appears to be the excuse that we're hearing. Uh, those next negotiations are going to be all about young players getting paid while they're young and good. Mm-hmm. And I saw an interesting comment on this. I can't remember who it was, but it basically said that like MLB could have avoided that just by just throwing a little bone to some of these veterans and kept them happy, they would have been able to keep the, the good players for cheap as long as possible. But that's just the, the biggest disconnect here is there's the owners and there's the players, but the big player in the middle of that is general managers and presidents, and they're operating on a totally different level. They're not in here trying to, 
think about keeping a certain group happy so that they can do better in the next CBA. They're just trying to put the best team on the field for the whatever money they've got. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with the situation we have now, if, as you mentioned, that is the reason that they're just not willing to pay for decline years anymore. It's like, well, you know, we want to be good. We don't want to hurt ourselves down the road with a potential, you know, play like Tori Tulowitzki, for example, you know, making 20 million for the next couple of years and then 14 million. Yeah. So do you think, do you think there are owners who are going to the, uh, to their general managers and saying you have this much money now? Um, but I don't want to see $50 million tied up on guys who are over 35, um, you know, in 2020, I don't want to hear about that because I, I don't want you, you know, coming to me, you know, with all these backloaded contracts. I, th- I think it's more just GMs know that they're responsible for their budgets. And if, you know, if the budget goes down and they are saddled with this $25 million on their books, then they can't operate. Hmm. Makes sense. I think that's just what it is. Yeah. I, I don't think it's an ownership direction. I think it's just an understanding that that's the way the sport goes, and that's you know that this keeps them safe to make that move if they need to make a move for a guy, or if they they see a window opening up with some unexpected, you know, rookies who are better than they thought they would be, or a lineup that's performing better than they thought they would be. They want to leave themselves that opportunity and not be like, oh well. I could have done something, but I can't pull a deal off now because I know next year I'm not going to have the money for that. Right. And we, we, you know, we talked about a bunch of the other things too. There's the new luxury tax and, and the big spending potential next year. There's the teams that aren't contending. There's a lot of factors going into this. But essentially, you know, our base point is there's a lot of unhappy people and it's not going to get any better any faster. No. All right. Let's just uh, wipe that one away. Let's move on to... <laughs> actual possible people playing baseball on a field which apparently pitchers and catchers is like what nine days away six days away mm, yeah i think it's on uh, on valentine's day or something like that as soon as they sign a pitcher and a catcher we're gonna have guys to- <laughs> <laughs> uh we do have joe biagini though joe biagini who was very good in the bullpen uh and then bounced back and forth a lot last year and was i'm gonna say great against only the orioles as a starter <laughs> And, um, and I mean, that's important because you face the Orioles a lot. Uh, and, and we're looking at Joe Biagini fifth starter in the major leagues right now. Are we not? Uh, current, if the season started right now or well, spring training is about to start right now, (laughs) but yeah, he would be the fifth starter. And I actually wrote a piece on this today for, for BP Toronto. It could be better than it looks. I, I looked at sort of some of the indicators of you know, your viability as a pitcher and, you know, his first time through the rotation when he went straight from the bullpen to the rotation and there was no, there's no transition. He didn't go to the minors or anything. His velocity dropped a lot. But then when he went down to the minors and came back up as a starter, it was a lot better. And there were some release point issues. There are things that could indicators that mean he could actually be not bad as a starter if he has to. But there's still a lot of risk there. I think. Uh, I think also, h- how does he affect the bullpen by leaving it? Um, is part of that discussion as well, right? And I think it has to be. I, mean, I think you're dead on right there because, especially now that they've traded Dominic Leone. Right now, the right-handers in the bullpen are Roberto Osuna, Ryan DePera, Danny Barnes, and 
Carlos Ramirez. I, I mean, I th- that's pretty much it. And one of those guys is going to be closing, and probably one of those other guys is going to be setting him up. So there's not as much flexibility there. <laughs> and you're also looking at guys like Tapera and Barnes, who threw way more than they ever have in their lives last year. Yeah. So you've got a roles problem, you've got a depth problem. Yeah, so, I mean, all indications are that with the Blue Jays' remaining resources for this offseason, they're looking to add to both the rotation and the bullpen. Uh, you know, they're probably going to try to bring in someone the way they did Joe Smith and, and J.P. Howell last year. One of those worked. The other one, not so much. <laughs> True. And, it's, it's that you don't expect the roll of the dice to be so definitively uh, heads versus, or sorry, uh, the flip of the coin, I should say, to be so definitively heads versus tails. But that's exactly what you got out of Smith and Howell. Yeah, if you if you if you were going <laughs> dice, one of them was snake eyes and one of them was double sixes. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, and they're probably going to try and add a starter. And, and if they could do that, if they can get a reliever and a starter and then, then put Biagini into the bullpen or in Buffalo or t- and Taylor Guerrero into the bullpen or something, then all of a sudden both of them get much better. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to wait and see. Yes, it's February 7th, and we're telling you to wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, leaves us with the offensive portion of the team. We have a lineup. I, I, have you gone so far as to construct the probable lineup versus lefties and righties at this point? I've tried to do it, and I just don't have an answer. I, this will be a very interesting test for John Gibbons because I don't think he's ever had the versatility that he has this year by having Jan Hervis Salarte and Aled Ms. Diaz, both of whom can play a whole bunch of positions. Mm-hmm. So which you know, one and is, then you, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Which one bats from which side again? <laughs> Diaz is a righty, and Solarte is a switch hitter. Okay. Uh, Solarte hits righties much better than he hits lefties, so he's more of a left-handed hitter than a switch hitter, but he can hit both ways. And, you know, there's a lot of... I mean, obviously, health is going to be the biggest determining factor in who's playing and who's not, but when everybody's there, it's really hard to figure out how they're going to get at-bats to some of these guys, especially because their plan is to play Randall Gritchuk every day in right field. Don't forget Teoscar Hernandez. I think he's going to be in the minors. I think Teoscar Hernandez and Anthony Alford will combine with Dalton Pompey to form the best Buffalo outfield, <laughs> triple A outfield in baseball. But <laughs> It's hard to argue with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'm very curious. So one of the big issues the Jays have had, and Andrew Stoughton over at Blue Jays Nation wrote a whole piece on this a month ago or so. They didn't hit right-handed hit pitchers very well last year. And that was a big problem. You know, getting Granderson and Solarte help address that. But the guy that seems to be out of a job, Ezekiel Carrera mashed right-handed pitchers last year. Ezekiel Carrera doesn't make any sense, though. Every time no. we try and figure out what it is he's supposed to be doing, he does something different. Yeah, and I just don't know what his role is on this team anymore. I mean, you've got probably a platoon of Pearson, Granderson, and left. Pilar is going to play every day in center because that's just what they do. And if Gritchick is the everyday right fielder, where does Zeke fit in? Well, I, I don't think he does, because in addition to that, you just described that AAA outfield. If one of those guys is playing well and someone gets hurt of the, the four-man outfield you just described, I don't think Ezekiel Carrera becomes the everyday replacement left fielder. I think any sign of life 
from those three guys in the minors and they're the uh, the replacement fielder right exactly it's the it's the type of depth you have for when you need a real replacement i guess a guy like Carrera could go in if it's a two-day injury and you don't want to send a guy to the dl but other than that i it really seems to me like what they should do is just get rid of him cut Carrera or trade him or do whatever you need to do and get another pitcher because that bullpen is thin i'm arguing for an eight-man bullpen well, I think, uh, honestly, in modern baseball, the eight-man bullpen is, uh, unless you have an actual workhorse on your staff that will throw as many innings as, say, R.A. Dickey every year, uh, the way things or work now... Or two or three now, of those guys. Yeah. Like, I mean, when you had a Burley and a and a R.A. Dickey, not, again, not because they're great pitchers, but because they're going to show up every day and give you 200 innings, um, then you can mock an eight-man bullpen all you like. But those... That's not how pitching staffs work anymore. No. I mean, and especially if you look at the Blue Jays pitching staff, like let's say Joe Biagini's in the bullpen and they get another starter. It's still not going to be some, you know, they're not going to pull in Jake Arrieta or you Darvish. Like that's not going to happen. And so you're looking at Stroman, who's a legitimate 210 inning guy. And you're not getting that from any of the remaining pitchers. I mean, Hap. Strada, Sanchez, whoever they get for that fifth spot, none of those guys is exactly durable. Well, yeah, and and if you try and wave this in our face, you know, seven months from now and go, hey, Hap had 200 innings, yeah, it could have just as likely been 150 innings. <laughs> like, right. they could do it, but you need to construct the pitching staff assuming they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And this, again, it goes. this is exactly what you said. It goes back to you get as many useful relievers as you can. And that's why there's just no room for Ezekiel Carrera on this team, which is funny. I said that last year, but I was arguing for Melvin Upton. This year, it's a totally different thing. <laughs> You're actually arguing for like four other people before uh, Ezekiel Carrera right now. <laughs> yep. Different argument. Oh, all right. So it is, a, it is a lineup that may get changed a lot by John Gibbons because he does love to play the hot hand. I still don't know who hits leadoff. Uh, if he's healthy, you Devin Travis. And it's kind of a weird thing because he doesn't walk. Well, I feel like a healthy Devin Travis who is a little more relaxed does walk enough to have an OBP, you know, over that 330 to 350 range. I feel like every time he gets hurt, then when he comes back, he starts to swing just to prove that he can swing as, as some mm-hmm. younger players are wont to do. But you know, when when he's had his confidence, he he does have a good judge of the strike zone. It's true. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, indeed. All right, we are going to uh, leave the Blue Jay specific stuff, and we are going to come back uh, with Emily Walden after this very brief interview. And we here at Artificial Turf Wars are pleased to be joined by Emily Walden of the Athletic Detroit. Uh, welcome back, I guess, to uh, Artificial Turf Wars, although I don't know what the name of this podcast was when you were last joined us. No, it was still this one, so we're good. Okay. <laughs> so no identity crisis. That's good to know. <laughs> uh, so you were forcibly recruited by The Athletic, like every other writer out there, so congratulations on that. Um, I hope there was... Uh, there was uh, no uh, trauma when they kidnapped you in the night and told you you were working for them. No, no trauma. Thank 
hopefully Ken Rosenthal and his uh, unmarked white van have done a very effective job of not creating too much uh, PTSD in the process. Awesome, awesome. So you cover uh, a lot of different minor leaguers, and uh, we noticed on Twitter you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to talk about was how uh, the minor league side of the game, as as players, are not um, treated nearly as luxuriously as their major league counterparts. So we wanted to get into some more depth with you. So I guess the first question from is really what does a minor league player typically get paid for a season's work? Well, the thing about the minor league system is that every affiliate tends to have a different pay scale set up. A lot of that is on the basis of what the major league office kind of sets as far as parameters go. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the major league club is who signs the paychecks. Um, The affiliates, who the players are obviously assigned to, they don't have the luxury of signing the paychecks. So any type of a shift as far as compensation changes would have to literally come from the top. And obviously it's been a very scrutinized topic for quite some time and um, definitely below below where the bar should be as far as what they should be making just as standard employees um, some of the levels after taxes are making about four dollars per hour and that doesn't include some of the other things they're responsible for like um, clubhouse dues um, just paying general gas for their car, you know, if they want to go out to eat at any time. Um, it's a very, very stressful process for them. And a lot of them have had to pick up second jobs. And um, so it's really, it's it's a very tough thing to watch. But obviously, it's, it's something that is really going to have to start from the top as far as who makes those calls. And it's going to be a very long process to get that change made. Now, you mentioned specifically an hourly wage concept there. I think this is something that a lot of people have trouble wrapping their heads around properly because to them, a minor leaguer just plays their three-hour day, three-hour game. But there's a lot more than the daily requirements of a minor leaguer, isn't there? I would say there definitely is. I mean, you look at the fact that they're traveling so much Um, the amount of time that they spend on a bus, depending on the location of the affiliate they're assigned to, Um, staying in subpar hotels, really not eating the greatest food when they're on the road. Although some teams are really beginning to make nutrition a priority. Um, That's something that has really started to kind of come into the spotlight, which is an incredible improvement considering where it was at before. Um, So the fact that they have to kind of build into this crazy schedule they've got to get used to um you know making a life for themselves and then not being able to meet their financial needs um anywhere from cell phone bills to paying rent um, not all affiliates have housing set up and so a lot of the players are responsible for finding their own housing in time for this season to begin so that's another very hefty responsibility on them while they're trying to pursue you know, this ultimate hopeful career at the major league level. So just really a lot for them to shoulder overall. Especially considering that the percentage of them who are actually going to make it um, is is actually quite low. So you're looking at a a bunch of people who are genuinely, the vast majority of them know that they they are going to be sacrificing these years and, and you don't really get them back. 
That's very true. And it's obviously, as anyone who knows who's been an athlete at one point or another, just an incredibly minute percentage actually make it to the major league level. Um, For baseball specifically, I want to say of college athletes, it's maybe one to two percent that actually make it to the major league level. And so those kinds of numbers, obviously, they're aware that it's a grind. They're aware that it's a sacrifice. Um, So from the perspective that I've always had on the topic, to be able to invest in the source of revenue for these teams from the league perspective, I don't personally see it as too much of a stretch for a lot of these owners to reach a little bit deeper into their pockets and be able to meet some of these needs on a better basis. Obviously, like I said, it's an incredibly complicated process to lay it all out. They have um, no union representation at the minor league level, and that's that's another big issue that's really created some problems. So it's really going to be a process of putting the right pieces into place and then also having the right individuals who are willing to continue to fight this at a higher level to make sure changes are made. Yeah, and then unfortunately, though, it seems as though the people at the highest level really look at this as a different way. Given what you're talking about, 1% of, or to 2% of college players, and probably even lower than that for high school players and international free agents, how offensive was it when the league came out and, sa- and said that they're treating this as an apprenticeship when so few of those people actually get to graduate to the master level? It's That was really hard to swallow, and I know the players have to swallow it on a whole nother level themselves, knowing the sacrifices that they've made, um, and the fact that a lot of people have looked at the situation and said, well, you know, they don't have to play. Nobody's forcing them to play. But the way that I've always looked at that is, why should someone have to change the dream they're pursuing because they're not able to live in an actual functioning lifestyle with the money that they're given. You know, it's a job. It's You're employed by an organization, and the financial side of that should be able to measure up to a standard living situation. And unfortunately, it's not being met at that level right now at the minor league, um, the minor league organization. So uh, that is the question that we sort of wonder about, is why do you think that I mean, obviously, the owners are going to try and squeeze as much as they can. But why does the MLBPA continue to ignore the people who are going to be its members and and who were minor leaguers at some point themselves? Why did they forget so quickly what that's like? You know, I don't know if it's necessarily that they have forgotten or that they're ignoring. I think it's a fact that. You know, for example, the fight that they have right now was trying to get this free agent situation handled. And um, so I think it's more of the fact that they're kind of fighting their own battles. And from the minor league system, they really do have to have some sort of representation, which they don't have. And again, personally, I am not a legal expert, so that's not something that I will (laughs) delve into too deeply, but it's something that I think would be very beneficial for them moving forward. And it's really something that they're going to have to kind of get the ball rolling from that angle because the minor league level really is, it's its own separate entity from Major League Baseball. They're two different groups, even though they are tied in together, it's two different scenarios. And I feel that that type of representation at the minor league level would be really beneficial moving into the future you know obviously that would be the perfect world situation but you know you talked about how there's all these it'll be a slow long process and people need to step up 
Has there been any progress on this front? I know there was a lawsuit at some point, but in general, is there any movement in even at the grassroots level? But you know that actually looks like it could have some impact. You know, I think that people are starting to take more notice of where it's at right now. I wouldn't say any of the changes have been really eye-catching to the degree I would like to see them be made. But I think the more this topic is brought to the surface, the more that it comes up in conversation and the more people in general are educated about it, it's going to stir up more concern. Um, the players obviously try to do their best to make it known, but they're again, they're at the mercy of the clubs. They don't want to jeopardize their position. They don't want to get too verbal at the risk of, you know, hurting themselves and their careers. So it's really, it's a touchy subject for a lot of people and they have to feel comfortable enough to where they can be honest with the right people and the right people need to pay attention because nobody should have to change their goals because their financial needs cannot be met when the players, in all honesty, are the ones producing this revenue for these, you know, multi-million dollar people who hold the checkbooks and they're the ones signing the checks. So it really comes down to them making that first move and making it worth these guys' while. So uh, we are up here in the Great White North. So from a legislative point or from a political point, we we don't have a lot of uh, leverage, but not all of our listeners are from over this side of the border. If someone was looking to get involved or help someone out, what do you think would be a, a good step? Is there, is there someone, you know, an organization that they could uh, get in touch with? Or is there, is there some sort of uh, a place to start of, of an actual concrete effort? You know, and to actually correct you, the Great White North is my backyard at the moment because we are sitting under a great deal of snow here <laughs> in the state of Michigan. So I can I can relate to your pain. <laughs> I definitely can relate to your pain. Um, as far as assistance, I think, again, kind of like I touched on earlier, just being educated to the situation, uh, being educated to what a standard employee should expect and deserve, and also being aware of what type of, you know, programs or, you know, different things that are available in these minor league towns. Um, like I said earlier, not every affiliate offers host families. So even looking into trying to help kind of set up a process that makes it more comfortable for these players coming to town, you know, setting up some type of housing arrangements that would help them, you know, working to to get these guys taken care of. I know some incredible host families, um, even here in the West Michigan area, who have done just some amazing things for these players. A lot of them coming from different countries. They have no family here, barely speak our language. And so trying to make it as comfortable for them as possible when they've put up so much sacrifice really shouldn't be that big of a deal. So I think for people wanting to reach out, research, you know, look up the details of it, really get to know where these guys are coming from. And I think that anything you do is going to be very much accepted. And really, the most we can do is just really keep the word out there to keep people educated. And hopefully, more of that will make a difference as we move forward. I, I think that's an excellent thought. I think, yeah, if, if you do have a minor league affiliate in your town or near your town, and, and you go to watch the ball games, maybe think about uh, getting a little bit more involved, because they're, they're not just players, they're people out there. And, uh, and they're trying to, they're trying to make their dream come true. And maybe you could help make that a little easier for them. Uh, on that note, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, Emily, uh, 
we really appreciate you coming on. Um, we want this issue to have as much visibility as we can bring it because we do think it's important. Um, so uh, we, we appreciate your time coming by. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, I will also give you an opportunity to plug the Twitter handle if you want people to follow that. <laughs> yes, um, you can find me on Twitter. It's Emily C. That C is in cat Walden. And you can find my stuff up at the Athletic Detroit. And also for Blue Jays fans, I will have some fun stuff coming up this season. I'm going to do a lot of trips to Class A Lansing um, and hopefully have some really fun notes for some of the prospects coming up. So a lot to look forward to this season. Absolutely. Thanks again. You're welcome. that was a great conversation with Emily and then we I, I let you in on a little secret folks we, we kept talking to her a little bit afterwards and it turns out the Blue Jays uh, when they brought Bo and Vlad to Lansing they really did treat them like royalty yeah <laughs> and really took care of them too in ways that you know in terms of their health and uh, you know their time on the field which we hear about this high performance department it's nice to see that they're really extending this down to the minor leagues and trying to take care of them in that way too though but yeah, and the Blue Jays have that rookie camp where they bring, uh, what, 12 or 15 minor leaguers up to Toronto every winter and, you know, show them the stadium and they show them the clubhouse and all that other stuff. Um, and I've always kind of dismissed that. But on the other hand, I think, you know, getting your feet wet that way, if they're expecting to call you up, maybe that's a smarter move than we give them credit for. Yeah, maybe. But uh, either way, it's, uh, you know, this this whole treatment of minor leaguers and everything about it. You know everything Emily said there. We should. I think everybody listening to this should really, you know, make an effort to try to push this forward. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we shall move though on to the most important thing of every podcast: listener questions. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules: first I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? Oops. <laughs> I hit pause. Uh, anyway. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so we know that it's the most important segment because without any listeners, is there really a podcast? Oh, it's like the tree falling in the forest. Exactly like that. And when we get questions, we know there must be listeners. And our first listener from way back on February 2nd, we have a question from Travis Laver at Travis underscore R underscore Laver. Uh, imagine, as I'm sure you often do, that you are the president or GM of the Jays. Donaldson's representatives come to you in the dark of night. No, I added that part. Uh, with the framework <laughs> of a five-year, $130 million deal starting in 2019. Do you draw it up, Josh? If they came in the dark of night, I'd probably say, why are you at my house at this time <laughs> of day? But since you added that part and not Travis, five years, $130 million? You're looking at 26 million a year. He's making 23 now. That takes into his age 37 season, I think. I think I'd probably do it, but that's probably the upper limit of of what's reasonable given you know his age and typical aging curves. Yeah, uh, though I would still do it. Yeah, but I would I wouldn't go to six years at that no. same annual rate. But five years, 130, I think I would. 
Would you do six one thirty five? Well, yeah. If you're adding another year for five million, I think I would do it. Yeah, but you backload the year, so you're stuck paying mm. them the twenty six million, twenty seven million dollars in the last year. So you feel <laughs> well. It. Then you're doing you're doing really well in the previous years. Then, but yeah. yeah, I think both of us would do this. So, uh, what's next? This is from not me, but a guy named Josh at Sergio Dip with three P's for some reason. Observation. Blue Jays quickly turned into a to the worst major tr Toronto sports team. Uh, this is a big thing in parentheses because the Leafs and the Raps are both playoff locks, young and exciting, while leaving the Raptors and TFC or the Argos and TFC casually won championships this year. Weird time. Not a question, but it's an interesting comment. Yeah, I, I don't think we, we we tend to ignore other sports with great emphasis around here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe some of our disappointment. Or our, you know, the whole idea that we, we don't want it to um, to be a half effort on the part of the Jays. I think part of that is driven by seeing in the Twitter sphere and online and in the media, all the other teams being really, really good. Mm -hmm. You want to be in that club of goodness. And it's really funny, especially because, you know, two years ago, the Jays were in the ALCS. Three years ago, the Jays were in the ALCS. And the, and the Leafs weren't even making the playoffs. Yeah. And and especially, though, because last year the Leafs made the playoffs, and the Jays made the playoffs, and the Raptors were good, and TFC was good, and the Argos were the Argos, and they just, you know, the CFL is like seven teams. So winning this great cup doesn't mean a whole lot. But, you know, it looked like everybody was going to be good at the same time, and then the Jays picked the worst time to not have a good year. Uh, I know it seems like that, but there's no time, no good time to not have a good year. Um, That's true. Michael Gordon at Michael 09939087. Now, he might be a bot, but we're going to answer the question anyway. Uh, <laughs> what's your thoughts about the Blue Jays farm system and on what's happening with free agency? We covered the free agency bit, obviously, in great depth in yes. section one. Um, but the Blue Jays farm system in general, how do we feel about the, there are so many rankings of so many players and top 100s and everything else. How do you feel about it overall? Uh, yeah, I look at them, but I also listen to what people are saying from within the industry. and I think it's pretty good. I mean, if you look at where the Jays are right now, they've traded away J.B. Wooden and Hector Oliveras and Connor Green to get Grichuk and Salarte and Diaz. You know, they the fact that they felt they had the ability to make those moves, and with everything we know about this front office, says that there's a lot of strength there and a lot of depth. And the top end is as good as it gets. You know, Bichette and Guerrero. There's no team in baseball that has a top two like that. And when you add in Anthony Alford and Pearson and Jansen and Barucki, you've got a bunch of guys who should be major leaguers. And I think that's about as good as you can ask for from a system. I think, yeah, the the top is surely a gleaming gem right now. Um, and, I mean, that doesn't mean they're both going to hit and become major leaguers, but it certainly provides the best odds we've seen in a long time of two guys, you know, who who are really... Super yeah, exactly. I think the other part about it that really stands out for me is we're not used to seeing position players mm -hmm. <laughs> show up and be homegrown. And I think that's one of the other reasons why it's so tempting to just hold on to uh, those two guys and hope that they play in the infield is because who was the last great homegrown Blue Jays infielder? 
Exactly. <laughs> well, Baseball America ran ran a piece, or they're running a series actually on uh, what the teams would look like if they were only made of homegrown players. The Jays' pitching staff would be ridiculous. Oh yeah, we tear it up. But their, their, their starting shortstop was Ryan Goins. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I don't even want to think about problems. who their catcher is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, position players have been a problem. I think it was it was relative to how how toolsy the drafts were, um, and the tools that they and were it, good at. Maybe were pitching tools evaluating. But also, Anthopolis specifically had a policy of drafting a bunch of pitchers, high ceiling pitchers, because he felt it was a lot easier to acquire hitting at the major league level than to acquire pitching. And he may have been right because he did manage to get himself a playoff berth and a half because I still give him credit for the 2016 one a little bit. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, out of that strategy. Anyway, uh, last question. Fire away. No, there's two more. But oh, uh, sorry, forgot th- my. This track. one from, comes from Corey Cherapushik. Sorry if I got that pronunciation wrong. At chirps eight six two. Why do I want Pilar to be traded so badly? <laughs> I mean, he's been great for the organization minus the Atlanta incident. That was a pretty good minus. He came up with the organization after being drafted super late, but yet I can't wait to see a trade notification and move on. So I think I can answer this, is that uh, sometimes a player gets his tires pumped so furiously by everyone on a broadcast that you eventually get just exhausted from it that's even if you're a a kevin pilar were a kevin pilar fan when he first got called up surely by now you have seen that his superlative defense has as much to do with his ability to make the most of his limited speed and reaction time and do spectacular looking things that aren't necessarily as spectacular if you're a little bit faster and have a little bit better read on the ball and he's never really matured quite quote unquote as a hitter so you must know by now he's a hole for obp between those two things i don't know that you really want to see him play in center field every single day yeah i think that's it it's just by seeing him as much as we have we see the flaws and at some point these flaws become just too much to handle and especially the hitting the chasing the slider down and where the fastball is going to hit him in the face no, it's just at some point it's just enough and you don't want to see it anymore. Now we're going to see it a lot because they got Randall Grichuk too, but it's just the way it is. And I, I also wait for that day just so you yes, know, Corey. Yeah, <laughs> we're with you. Uh, Phil Golubovich at Philly G. <clears throat> a simple one. Ripped Lincecum, fifth number five starter, question mark. Well, there's a hashtag in there for number five starter, of course. Yeah, now... Some of you may remember back when we were the, the base Blue Jays Plus podcast, before there was a not Pat Venditti, there was a not Tim Lincecum. <laughs> I love Tim Lincecum. He is one of my favorite pitchers all time to watch. I don't think he's a fit. I mean, the guy, <laughs> you know, the guy hasn't been good in years. He's had all kinds of problems. And he's working out a driveline and... We've had Kyle Bodie on here before, and we probably will again at some point, the the creator of that company. But, you know, if he's if he looks really good, yeah, give him a minor league deal. But, I mean, they need to aim a lot higher than that. Yeah. The, unfortunately, Tim Lincecum, he may look a certain way uh, or he may be throwing a certain way in a bullpen. But I really think 
a, a player like him gets to a point where they punished parts of their body that they needed to keep working and they they punished them very very hard in a very short span of time and got as much out of them as they could i don't think those parts are coming back yep so much love uh we still like you tim lincecum we just don't think you're a fit i think yeah it's not it's not you it's us <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm sorry uh, tim it's just it's, it's not pat venditti now it's it's you've been replaced all right we have a wonderful do-over so i'm gonna hit it up oops i said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet <laughs> but what if you could do it all over again but what i really meant was all right so i let you read the words of one agent i will read the words of another agent <laughs> jay alu on twitter <clears throat> tweeted out presumably in reaction to someone uh using wins above replacement in an arbitration hearing is my guess do we know exactly what or negotiation what? a negotiation <clears throat> war is not reproducible uses adjustments that are not concrete and lacks methodology as a whole okay at this point you could although it would be a very difficult argument to make make that argument that that because there's three different versions at minimum of wins above replacement that you weren't really dealing with a concrete measurement unfortunately with 280 characters, Jay continues, <laughs> WAR doesn't measure intangibles like heart, now that's in capitals, experience, work ethic, leadership, playing through injury. WAR can't measure capitals love and capitals passion for the game, also in capitals for some reason. <laughs> Fans, also in capitals, deserve their players, all in capitals. Um, I... I would not want this particular line of questioning or reasoning trying to back up a contract I was signing. Yeah. So <laughs> if this was the, the thinking process of your agent, <laughs> wouldn't you go looking for a different one? <laughs> it's like, I don't want, I don't want an agent out there who's thinking, I don't listen to war. I only listen to weird intangibles like heart and leadership and for some reason, playing through injury, it was listed as a good thing. <laughs> it's a very bad thing, as we've discussed many times on this podcast. I don't want this guy representing me. I want someone who understands the modern way of thinking. How um how much uh, per year uh, bonus do you get for loving the game, Josh? <laughs> well, what about love and passion in all caps? Oh yeah, absolutely. If if you love with just like lowercase letters, that doesn't even pay. You have to have love and passion, both in all caps. So the funniest thing about this whole thing is right. So the intent, like heart, experience, work ethic, it's leadership, not through injury, injury, but the other stuff, it matters, right? You know, well, especially experience, work, and leadership. There, there's a value to it, and that's part, a big part of why the Blue Jays signed Curtis Granderson. But here's the other thing: you also have to be good. Well, yes, but go back to the, the first point he made was that they were using something that lacked a methodology and was not concrete. And then he listed heart, experience, work ethic, leadership, <laughs> love, and passion. He even called them intangibles. Does he understand what that word means? I don't it means get you can't it. measure them. In the but first half. The thing you, is, like, you're, you're talking about all these things, right? 
heart, yep. experience, work ethic, leadership, playing through injury again for some reason. You can be really, really bad and have those things. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to pay you. No. Yeah. So, uh, other than negating his own argument with the second half of the tweet <laughs> that he was trying to set up as the first half, uh, I think Mr. Alou's, uh do-over would be to not telegraph anything like that if he wants to keep all of his clients out in public. You know what? I think just don't tweet. I think if you just erase yes. all your tweets and uh, and come on the show and say you're sorry for tweeting, we would probably not talk about this again. Yes. So the do-over be done. And that means, I believe, that we are we are quickly approaching the end of the podcast. But before I get to the end of a podcast, I usually give you this opportunity to have a final thought, which, uh, as it turns out, might not be what you originally planned because we have what for us is breaking news. Yeah. I was originally going to talk about some silliness involving football players being traded and the nonsense of that part of things, but no. Tim Brown of Yahoo Sports has reported that the MLBPA is preparing to conduct spring training camp for free agents, and Jeff Passan furthers that, saying the union is considering starting camp as soon as Tuesday, although a lot of players haven't been informed yet, so <laughs> who knows how many are coming, but they're still going to try to do it. So this is a camp for all of the people who don't have a camp. Mm -hmm. uh, so they I can go and they can work out and you know, all in one place with, with some kind of... They, they were talking about the IMG Sports Academy, so there'd be coaches and things like that. Although, who knows how effective this is going to be because from Passon, quote, one free agent told me he'd rather stay home. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't we all rather than work out? <laughs> um, I am. I am just slightly curious if you let the free agent team get together and and <laughs> go on the road how they much would run sh <laughs> i won't swear but there's a lot <laughs> the free agent team would be really good they would destroy some of the spring training squads that get put on the road <laughs> all right well there's there's a weird one uh my final thought is if you are really pining for some competitive give and take in the baseball world uh slide on over to twitter and pick either brandon mccarthy or josh donaldson and scroll <laughs> back a little bit and uh watch them trash talk one another just like it was the middle of july it's pretty good there's a series of tweets where uh there's some debate about what would happen to the bat and the ball <laughs> if ever they were to meet up it was really good yeah uh healthy rivalry that's what we like uh, the spirit of competition all right, so we are really at the end of uh, the podcast. So I would like to say uh, you have been Joshua Housem at Joshua Housem, and I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead2010. And our guest was Emily Walden from the Athletic Detroit at Emily C. Walden. And this has been Artificial Turf Wars episode number 87. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. <laughs>